Hi, this is Pastor Kagan here, and I wanted to set up this special podcast today with you and let you know what's going on. It's a special presentation from the American Restoration Tour, The Church Finds Its Voice. That is a multi-state tour hosted by Chad Conley of Faith Winds and David Barton of Wall Builders. It is a message of hope, renewal, and revival that is being brought to America's leading cities and churches. America's founding principles, born from biblical truth, are under attack like never before. More than ever, it's crucial to understand why God's role in America cannot be ignored. The responsibility rests on the church to find its voice and preserve our nation. I cannot wait for you to hear what is coming next from David Barton, a leading historian that has a grasp on our biblical founding as a nation. Enjoy, and I'll come back and visit with you right afterwards. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Pastor Mark, thanks for hosting this. I want to start off with, um, oops, we're going to skip that real quick. We'll go here to history. Just that one word. Uh, This is one thing the Bible does emphasize. It tells us to recall the former days, remember the former times, tell your children the things that happened in past generations. We're told in Romans and 1 Corinthians 10 that these things have happened in the past for an example for us. So there's so much the Bible emphasizes on history. There's a great quote about history that comes from George Orwell. And just break it down. He says, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Now, let's take this part here. The present, the people who are teaching history right now control the past because they're choosing what students do or don't hear about the past. But the way you view that past, as he says, who controls the past controls the future. So what's being taught right now about the past will indicate what we're going to become because history is what defines you. Every time that Israel forgot who they were, they've got their history, they went off on a really weird path and then they come back. Even when Josiah was rebuilding the temple, trying to get God back in the center of the nation, they found that old scroll in the temple and they stopped and said, whoa, have you seen, did you know we used to be like this? That was in the middle of already trying to get God back in the nation. History really grounded them, put them back in a, in a good position. That's one of the revivals we see in the Bible is under Josiah. So this statement here, one of the things that, that we see with this George Orwell kind of stuff of how the present controls the past, which affects the future, is first evident in this generation in the 1980s and a guy named Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn was a history professor. He came out with this book called The history, a People's History of the United States. What he did was he found every single blemish that's ever happened in America, and he said, this is what America is. Didn't show any of the good stuff, didn't show any. You see, the Bible teaches you the good, the bad, the ugly, and that's what a true historian does, is show the good, the bad, the ugly, because you can learn as much from the bad and the ugly as you can from the good when you present it. But he didn't present any good. He only presented bad and ugly. He said, this is America. This is why it's fundamentally flawed. This is why it's so terrible. We do a lot of universities, a lot of debates with professors, and we have professors regularly say America has done more evil in her history than she's ever done good. That's from this, this viewpoint. And so he was an academic. This is what affected so many of the, the, the history books out there. Matter of fact, you still see it. And by the way, just for a biblical example, we know the story of David is good, bad, and ugly. We, we know that David was a really terrible parent. He, couldn't, he never said no to Adonijah. His own son led a revolt trying to kill him. And his own son killed his other son, Amnon, who had raped David's daughter. I mean, that's just not a good parent. He's also really goofed up with Bathsheba and Uriah, murdered Uriah, adulterated Bathsheba. And yet, most of the story of David is all the good stuff. God made a covenant with him. He was a man after God's own heart. He repented. He wrote the, most of the, the Psalms. I mean, so much of the Bible comes from this guy who had flaws. As Chad said, nobody's perfect, and David wasn't. So we know he had the bad and the ugly, but we also know there was much more good than there was bad and ugly. 
The way we teach history today is if you took 1 Samuel and the only thing you taught out of 1 Samuel was, was uh, uh, Bathsheba and Uriah. That's the only thing you ever told people that David ever did. That'd be an incomplete history, but that would be all you know. You'd never want to read any psalm. I can't read a psalm that, that this guy wrote. And see, that's what's happened to history. So showing you what happens today, um, you look at what's called the, the ape, and this is all called deconstruction, tearing down. You look at what's happened with, with the college board. The college board does the SAT test, but they also do 47 AP tests. Now, an AP test is, a, is an AP course in high school is one where you can go to the course, you're really good in that as a high school student, that subject, and you can get college credit at the same time you're going through high school. So AP means dual credit, college and high school. They're more advanced courses. And it's interesting that when you look at, at the testing that's done, these 47 tests, let me just take the one that's done on U.S. history. Now, the U.S. history AP test, and this is being taught here in El Paso County and every other county in the United States. States. This is taught in every single school that has AP history because they're the ones who provide the test. So every student studies this, and it's 162 pages of standards. And as you look at the 162 pages of standards, it's interesting to see what's in those standards, or maybe better yet, what's not in those standards. What you don't have is anything related to what we would call founding fathers, whether it's Jefferson or Franklin or Adams or Madison. None of those guys are there. The American Revolution, mm-mm, didn't happen. There was nothing like the all the battles there that caused America to be an independent nation. You move past the revolution, you get into things like Abraham Lincoln. Now he didn't exist. There was no Gettysburg Address. There was no Emancipation Proclamation. None of the stuff. He wasn't assassinated. There wasn't Lincoln. As a matter of fact, there wasn't even a civil war. There was neither North nor South. There was neither Lee nor Grant. There was no battle in the Civil War. Now this is AP U.S. History Standards. World War II is even worse. There is no battles in World War II. No Pearl Harbor. No D-Day. No Iwo Jima. There are no military leaders from World War II. There's nothing about Eisenhower. There's nothing about Patton or, or MacArthur or Nimitz. Matter of fact, there is not even the enemy. Hitler's not there, the Nazis aren't there, and the Holocaust is not there. Now, how do you teach American history and not teach any of this stuff? Now, if you're not teaching this, then what in the world are you teaching? Well, let me give you an example. This comes right out of the standards. They showed the atomic bomb and they say the decision to drop the atomic bomb raised questions about American values. Now, we didn't raise questions about Hitler's values because he didn't exist. There weren't 40 million people that died in the European theater. And we didn't raise questions about Tojo's values because he didn't exist. We didn't even have Pearl Harbor. So the 20 million that died in, in the Japanese theater, that, that didn't happen. The only thing that happened was America dropped a bomb that killed 300,000 people. And that raised questions about our values. So literally, you can study all of that AP course and come out believing that America is the bad nation in World War II crazy stuff, but that's what you have in standards. <coughs> Excuse me. So I want to hit this thing about raised questions about, how did it raise questions about American values? Because when you go back and look, take the devastation that happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What we do not teach today and what most Americans today actually don't even know is that we dropped a bunch of leaflets over those cities in Japan. As a matter of fact, we dropped 70 million Leaflets in Japan, we own so many of these. We own 160,000 artifacts, original artifacts, 120,000 from, from before 1812. But we have so many things from World War II. And we own these leaflets. These leaflets, 7 million dropped. On the backside, it says Japanese people. We are going, and by the way, at that point in the war, 
when we're bombing Japan, we've already finished the war in Europe. There's no Hitler left. There's no Mussolini left. Tojo has no allies, and we, he did not win a single battle in the Pacific. We won every battle rolling that island hopping. He has, there's no reason he should still be in the war. He has no allies left. He's got no future, and he won't give up. And, and so w what's happening is it's just, it's just mind-blowing that they wouldn't give up and they keep fighting and they keep dying. Uh, it, it, for example, at Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima, every Japanese family was given a hand grenade and said, if the Americans win, make sure you blow yourself and your kids up. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about the fact the Japanese trained 3,400 teenagers to deliver suicide bombs. We don't talk about the fact that Japanese killed, murdered, ten, beheaded 10 million Chinese. There's just a genocide against the Chinese that they went to Korea and took the women of Korea and brought them back as sex slaves for their soldiers. I mean, we don't talk about how all the things Japan did at that point in time. So here they are. They won't give up. We drop these, these 70 million leaflets on the back. It says Japanese people. We're going to destroy the military capability of Japan. You need to tell your leaders to give up. They can't win this war, but we do not want to hurt a single civilian. So here's the 35 cities we're going to bomb. We're telling you as civilians, get away from that. We will bomb them because they have military capabilities. We even told them about Nagasaki, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we dropped these. On top of that, before we dropped the atomic bombs, we had captured the island of Saipan. And in Saipan, we set up a radio station KSAI. And every 15 minutes, we broadcast on the Japanese mainland, the bomb is coming. Get away from the cities. The bomb is coming. We told them that we had, they had seen B-29s bomb Tokyo. We, we bombed the cities with traditional bombs. And so what happened was uh, General Curtis LeMay, who had the Army Air Corps, who had been bombing the cities and Japan wasn't giving up, he said, it looks like we're going to have to do a D-Day type of invasion on Japan like we did over at France to drive the Germans back into Germany. If we do that, what are we looking at? They said, well, if you have to invade this people with this mentality based on what they're doing right now, you will lose one million Americans. You'll probably lose two to four million allies, the British and the, the French and the Australians, and you're going to have to kill between five and 10 million Japanese before they give up. So you're looking at 15 million that probably will happen if you have to do a land invasion. And that's where Truman said, we're not gonna do 15 million. And so he, we told them, you've seen what the B-29s have done to have they devastated Tokyo. We have one bomb that will do what 2,000 B-29s do. 2,000 of these bombers, that's the equivalent of one bomb, and we're going to use it if you don't give up. And they didn't give up, and so we dropped that bomb, and the devastation was there. And it's interesting that when you look at what happened from the bombs, there were 150,000 deaths from the bomb and 150,000 deaths more from the radiation. So 300,000 lives were lost total as a result of those two bombs. You compare that to 15 million deaths, and I'm not sure what the problem is with American values. I mean, we saved a lot of lives doing that. And the guys that actually dropped the bomb, Dutch Van Kirk, who was a navigator, um, we have some of his handwritten stuff. He said, we dropped the bombs to stop the killing. That's what we did it for, not to kill people, but to stop the killing. And we saved maybe 14 million lives. But that's not worth telling an American story. And by the way, looking at the 300,000 that were there, did you know that the Japanese in just one prisoner of war camp beheaded more than 300,000 in one camp? They had beheading competitions between the officers to see who could behead 100 prisoners fast. They had to line up 100 prisoners and they'd have, oh, you're faster. Oh, it's a tie. You got to behead 10 more. I mean, 300,000 in one camp. We don't talk about that, but we do talk about the fact that Americans killed 300,000 with two atomic bombs and we're the bad guys in the war. So this is, again, 
the way the present presents the past affects what we're going to be in the future. If you think America is fundamentally flawed, and, and yes, we've had mistakes and made mistakes, we're humans. It's just like David, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I don't hesitate from telling the bad and the ugly, but I also tell the good, which is not being told today in most circles. So what happens is there's no question about American values except in these kind of books and their deconstruction. By the way, if you're not aware, this year a, lot, a number of states made this the state standards. Um, our state of Texas, every 12 to 14 years, we come up with new history standards. Minnesota, it's every 10 years. Every state's different. But as of right now, a number of states officially adopted this year that they will no longer, in their history courses, they will no longer teach the American Revolution, nor will they teach World War I, nor World War II, a civil war, or World War I, or World War II, or the Holocaust. All of those officially are out of history standards now in several states. Minnesota passed I went to uh, Louisiana, testify the legislature there. They were trying to pass a bill to keep this stuff in. We want to keep World War II in. I mean, New Orleans is the home of the World War II Museum. And they said, we want to keep the Holocaust. We want to keep the World War II. And yet that was defeated on the floor and ended up having to pull the whole bill because they couldn't keep World War II in and they couldn't keep the Holocaust in. And that's in Louisiana, which is considered to be a conservative state. So education has gotten such a stronghold now that it's so I hate America. We're just not aware of what our kids get in so many areas. So this is why we see the rise of things like Marxism and socialism and communism. We don't know who we are, but we're convinced we're bad. So anything else is going to be better than what America has been. So let's try something different. Let's try something new. And, and so with this, I, I mean, this is where all these groups have come up with critical race theory. Now, we would not have bought this 30 years ago because we knew too much of our own history. Now, we knew there were racial problems, but we knew that was not systemic across the nation. It was predominantly in southern states. It was not going in so many other states. It was called the Jim Crow South for a reason. So it wasn't every state doing that. Now, I'll, I'll hit some other things later about this. But what happens is so many groups have picked this up. Not only are we teaching it, but now you've got all these groups. And one of the things that they all believe is that you need rioting, rebellion, and radicalization. And so this is what goes with, with what we're seeing now in the transformation. Now, if you don't know much about critical race theory, let me just kind of lay it out. It takes as a starting point that America was founded to protect and preserve slavery. False assumption. Jamestown allowed slavery. The pilgrims got the second slave ship. When that ship arrived, they promptly freed the slaves and imprisoned the slave owners. And they quoted out of Exodus where the Bible prohibits man-stealing. And they said man-stealing is taking a person from one land to another land and selling them as a slave. Bible specifically prohibits. That's why in, the, in, in states like... Um, in states like Massachusetts, slavery was always banned because that was the position of the Bible and the pilgrims. And so you, you'll find the New England states. And by the way, just to put perspective on it, the first region in the world to ban slavery was the northern states. By 1804, every northern state had passed an abolition law. Nobody did it before the northern states in America. 1807, March of 1807, America is the first nation in the history of the world to sign a law banning the international slave trade. In 1819, Congress appropriated funds to send an entire naval squadron just to sit off the west coast of Africa and make sure no other nation went there to take slaves out of Africa. Now, west coast of Africa, that's thousands of miles long. Our squadron didn't stop them all. We stopped hundreds and hundreds of ships. Great Britain said, that's a great idea. They joined us. So Great Britain and America kept our squadrons off the coast of West Africa called the Africa Squadrons to keep other nations from taking slaves out of Africa. Nobody hears about that. When we banned slavery in 1865, and that's not that long ago. It was 156 years ago we banned slavery. We were the fourth nation in the world to ban slavery out of hundreds of nations in the world. So we're still way up among the leader. People are so concerned 
mind about what happened 300 years ago, 400 years ago, little time out here. Um, if you're concerned about slavery and racism, then let's note the fact that right now there's 193 nations in the world today and 94 of those nations still have not banned slavery. Slavery is still legal in 94 nations. As we sit here right now in this meeting, there are 40 million active slaves in the world today, 40 million. That's three times more than we had in 400 years of the slave trade. We got many more slaves today. There's 9.2 million in Africa. There's at least 3 million we know of in China. We know there's more than that. But just go through the list. America today is ranked as number two in the world out of 193 nations in fighting slavery and racism. So we're beating up America. That's because we don't know any of our stats. We don't know that we were the world leader in so many of these areas. And we're told that we've always been fundamentally flawed. And if you believe that, that's going to affect the future. So America, is this CRT takes as a starting point that America was founded to protect and preserve slavery. False. Some states did that. Most states did not. And that the American constitutional system is a source of our society's ills. So the constitutional system we have right now is why we have the problems. And by the way, the chief problem we have, foremost among them, is racism. So here's the real simple logic. If you think racism is a problem, and if you want to get rid of racism, what you've got to do is you've got to get rid of that constitutional system that produces racism. And so this is why you're seeing the attack on the system itself is because the, this is a bad premise historically. I mean, it's not, not even logical, but nobody really thinks through why we're teaching what we're teaching. So this is what you see. When you look at the Constitution itself, it's interesting. This is the Constitution that was used to, to ban the slave trade and eventually ban slavery. And this... The Declaration talks about all men are created equal, and yes, they did mean all men there, and we'll get into some of that later. It's interesting that as of last Monday, the National Archives, where they house both the Declaration and the Constitution, they have now put up a warning sign that says this document contains harmful language. Harmful language alert on the Constitution. You don't even want to read this because it has so much bad stuff. No, if you'll read it, you'll go, I'm not sure what that harmful language is you're talking about. When you read it, you don't even see the bad language, but what happens is they put this label up so that you won't even read it. And see, this is, this is what's happening now. I mean, the National Archives, where we house our document and every political official takes an oath to uphold the Constitution, and now we're saying you can't do that because it's full of harmful language. So going to this, most Americans today are unaware of how blessed we have been. We teach all of our flaws. We look in the mirror every morning and see every zit on our nose, and we don't see the overall face or the overall body or the overall strength and health we have. When you look at where we are now, I mentioned there's 193 nations in the world. Our constitution went into effect in 1789. We've still got the same constitution. Nobody else is even close to that. As a matter of fact, if you look since 1789 to see how other nations have done, imagine living in other nations and how many constitutions they've had since the same point in time that we've had one. Just, it's unbelievable. Whether they're enemies or whether they're allies, look at the instability and turmoil that characterizes every other nation in the world. They don't have the stability we're used to. And when you look at other nations in the world, it's like, man, there's so many constitutions, so many changes. Um, how long does the average constitution last in the history of the world? And the answer is 17 years. Well, this year we go to 234 years. So, we don't appreciate the blessing we have. We think that everybody's like America. Everybody's stable. The average nation, the typical nation averages a violent revolution every generation and a new constitution every 17 years. 
We haven't done that. That's a blessing, except we just don't know we're supposed to appreciate that because we didn't know what the blessing was. By the way, the same way, when you look at our creativity, America has 4% of the world's population. Now, 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. But when you look at America, we have produced more innovations, more technologies, more cures, more scientific discoveries, more everything, more patents, more copyrights than the other 96% of the world combined. So our little bitty 4% has outproduced everybody else in the world put together. And we take that for granted as well. I do a lot of military stuff, speak, do a lot of military training, military bases. And so I was over in Germany because I think we got 27 military bases in Germany. Imagine that. When we pull out of other nations, we didn't pull out all the way. We left some bases behind to keep stability in the region, just like we did in Korea, just like we did in Japan, just like we did in Germany, and they've been very stable regions. As a result, we pull completely out of this, and there are now, and I'll explain more about this later, there are now 20 different terrorist groups that have moved into Afghanistan. It is seen as the new hotbed for terrorism. I've been in some of the nations around in the last few weeks getting refugees out and talking to those nations around. Those other Arab nations are scared to death of the terrorism that's going to spill into their land because this is the new hotbed for terrorism. So you have Al-Qaeda that's moved back in in a very significant way. ISIS 3.0 is back. Uh, just so much. It, Taliban, and there's two versions of Taliban, the Haqqani Taliban and the normal Taliban. Normal Taliban is really bad. The Haqqani Taliban is a really brutal. They'd just as soon shoot you as look at you. We've been taking persecuted Christians out of Afghanistan for the last several weeks, and just last week, uh, the, the Taliban broke in on a meeting where they saw Christians praying, and there's a room full of Christians having a Bible study, and they murdered every one of them right on the spot, just killed them all. I cannot tell you how many murders we've had of Christians we've been trying to get out. Uh, so there's just a lot going on. But again, you look at where the military is. And I was in Germany doing military bases there training. And they put me up in a five-star German hotel. And for a cowboy from Texas, that's pretty cool. That's old, old world elegance, a castle. It was really neat. And that five-star hotel in Germany, I mean, they had so many people to wait on you. And as you walk in, they know you by name. And they, you know, it was just really cool. And it would have been a whole lot cooler if they would have had internet in that five-star hotel. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, even Motel 6 in America has internet. And five-star hotel in Germany didn't even have internet we could use. So, I mean, we just take things for granted. The same with our productivity. Uh, we are 4% of the world's population and we produce 25% of the world's gross domestic product. According to the Census Bureau, if you live in poverty in America, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe. And that's for poverty. We're blessed in ways we don't even recognize and we're determined to tell everybody how bad things are. And yes, there are faults and blemishes and we need to work on them, but we're not the worst nation in the world despite what people are being taught right now. So you look at what we have. This is called American exceptionalism. This was a term given us in 1831 by Lexi de Tocqueville who came here, wrote about America, said the nation is exceptional. I don't think any other nation will be able to do what they've already done. That was 50 years after the revolution. Interestingly, who are the leaders responsible for what we enjoy today? And invariably in textbooks, you go to political leaders. You say, oh, well, it has to be people like George Washington. It has to be people like John Hancock. It has to be people like John Adams. And all those names are fine and good, but here's the difference in the way we see history now and what actually happened. John Adams in 1816 was approached by a guy named Hezekiah Niles. Hezekiah Niles was a young man who had been born after the revolution. He was writing a history book on the American Revolution. And he said, look, I wasn't there. John, you were. I know this is 40 years after the fact. You're an old man now. But I'd really like 
to ask you from your viewpoint, you were there, who do you think's responsible for what we enjoy in America today? And when John Adams was asked, and this is kind of like the millennials asking the, the baby boomers or the baby busters, saying, hey, back in that great generation, I wasn't part of the great generation, what made it so great? And so when, they, when he asked John Adams that, and his book came out in 1824, we actually own the copy of the book he did after this letter to John Adams. When the book came out in 1824, it's interesting what John Adams had told him. He said, well, if you want to know who's responsible for what we enjoy in America, he said, right up top, you have the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And of course, there's the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. And don't forget the Reverend George Whitfield. Oh, you got the Reverend Charles Chalmers. He just starts going through a name and preachers. Now, we might understand who Whitfield is today, but the chances that we today know anything about Cooper or Mayhew or Chauncey, that's slim to none. And yet John Adams says, these are the dudes responsible. Now, we keep looking at political folks. He looked at spiritual folks. It's interesting that we don't look at pastors back then, whether they're white, whether they're black, whether it's Richard Allen or Absalom Jones, whether it's Lemuel Haynes or John Moran or Lemuel Haynes or even Harry Hoosier. And by the way, let me just take Hoosier for a minute, show you some of the significance of these guys. Harry Hoosier... Uh, was a preacher in the Great Awakenings. And if you remember the Great Awakenings, there's a number of famous preachers back there. The Wesleys were back there, and, and you have Whitfield back there. You have Francis Asbury. Remember Francis Asbury? This guy led 250,000 people to Christ in his ministry. Just unbelievable what he did in America back then. And Francis Asbury said, Harry draws larger crowds than I do. Well, Francis was really famous and drew massive crowds. Harry drew larger crowds. And Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, John Adams says he's one of the three most notable signers. Benjamin Rush says, I've heard Harry preach. He says, the greatest orator I've ever heard. Wait a minute. You've heard all the Patrick Henry's and all that. No, no, no. Nobody, nobody matches Harry. Now, Harry's ministry was with the blue collar folks. He, he really ministered uh, in, in the frontier kind of people and blue collar folks, whether they were pioneers or whether they were trappers or hunters or mountain men or whatever. And when they came to Christ, they were fully converted. I mean, their behavior changed because they're coming out of really rugged lifestyles as, as pioneers and, and trappers. And, and so their lifestyle was really different. Well, Harry predominantly meant, meant predominantly ministered along the East Coast, over in Jersey and Philadelphia and Delaware, et cetera. But as America started expanding in the early 1800s, as America moved west, all those frontier guys started moving west with it. And so as America moves west, they moved west. And by the time you get into about 1808, 189, the furthest west you could go in America was a place called the Indiana Territory. Now, as these guys got there, their behavior was so different from the other trappers and mountain men that the other guys would say, what's up with those guys? And the answer was, they're a bunch of those Hoosiers. Now, hopefully you connect the word Hoosier with Indiana. Indiana is the Hoosier state. I wonder how many people who live in Indiana know that they were named after a black evangelist. Probably very, very few. It would seem like if you had a... It would seem like if you had a state named after a dude, you might put him in your history book. Ah, I can't do that. That's religious stuff. That might look important. So, and there's so many other stories I can tell you, but John Adams, why would he say, why would he choose preachers and say, these are the guys responsible for our political system? That's because when you look at the Declaration of Independence, historians have documented that every single right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. So here's the assignment. Read the Declaration of Independence, but read it as a list of sermon topics 
because that's what it was. All the things in there had been preached from the pulpit. We own thousands of those early sermons. It, it's there. I mean, it's just, it's clearly there. So as you look at it, John Adams talked about how the pulpits had thundered. And if you look at what was done in that early era, let me take you back to some revival sermons. These are sermons preached either in the first or second great awakening. Show you what, what we were helping, how we helped people to think across the nation. Um, this is a sermon on, on earthquakes. It's a discourse on earthquakes. This is done by the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. Discourse is another word for sermon. Jonathan Mayhew is one of those guys singled out by John Adams as being really significant. And so I, I looked at this and I thought, and, and what had happened was they, in November of 1755, they had an earthquake in Boston. That's really rare. That doesn't happen much. But the belief was whatever's in the news, we need to show you the biblical perspective on it. You need to understand how the Bible applies to everything in life. And so since we had an earthquake, let's talk about that. And I thought, now that's interesting. I'm an ordained minister. I've served in a bunch of states, a bunch of church staffs. And I, I believe that I should read the Bible through from cover to cover at least once a year. I've got a lot of white hair, so I've read the Bible a bunch of times. And I thought, you know, I think I could preach a sermon on earthquakes. Because uh, I, I remember the earthquake under Uzziah in Chronicles. I remember the earthquake when Jesus died, the earthquake when Jesus resurrected. I, I, I think I could probably put together a good 20-minute teaching on, on the Bible and earthquakes. Well, good for me. That's a five-week sermon on earthquakes. I can't come anywhere close. I recently got on, on Internet, did an Internet search just for earthquakes in the Bible. I was shocked at how many earthquakes there were in the Bible. I just, uh, as many times I've read it, it's never stood out to me. It did stand out to them. They were looking for anything that applied to life. In the same way, Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, he's another guy singled out by Adams, the great fire that they had in Boston five years later. Anything that was in the news, let us show you what the Bible says about things like that. So these are fun sermons to read. By the way, we put 260 of these old sermons up on our website at wallbuilders.com. Com. If you want to go through and read some of these old sermons, they're, they're posted there. So we did sermons on natural disasters. Uh, here's a sermon on homosexuality. The sin of Sodom. This is homosexuality. This is an LGBTQ sermon back in the day. Uh, now, this is a, a topic the Bible is very, very clear about. It's interesting even if you just take and, and teach out of Genesis 19 and, and Judges 19, the parallels, that's almost a repeat of each other. The same behavior, and you find that there are patterns to LGBTQ behavior. And so there's so many verses in the Bible, 1 Corinthians and Romans and all these other passages. And yet this is a topic where most Christians are very silent today. And as a result, most, most young people are very confused on what the Bible says about issues like this because this is a pretty offensive topic. So we don't really want to cover this in church, and we don't, but we did back then. Uh, this is a sermon on the discovery of a new planet, 1847, Uranus. This is a sermon, actually two sermons, you see at the bottom, two sermons occasioned by the late blazing stars, comets. I was a little befuddled to try to think of a verse on comets, and again, you read the sermon, there's actually a number of verses that deal with comets. Here's a sermon on a solar eclipse, reflections on a solar eclipse. I couldn't remember one, so I read the sermon. It turned out he just spent a lot of time in the little bit of the book of Amos. Amos covers not only solar eclipses, but lunar eclipses. Again, just a couple of weeks ago, I just, I just went online and searched for eclipses in the Bible. There are so many, and somehow I've never noticed that before. Uh, so astronomy we covered from the pulpit. This is a sermon on the infirmities and comforts of old age. Now, it's probably not a popular topic, but it's a necessary topic because everybody's going to grow old. And everybody's got to deal with parents who grow old. So we had sermons on aging. Uh, this is a sermon on education. You see up top the importance of the early and proper education in children. And so we had several sermons on education. And that's, it's interesting. There is, you cannot find a model in the Bible where the Bible endorses secular education. 
It just doesn't. From the beginning, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is where you start. And yet we have a system of education in the country today that is very hostile to faith, very aggressively goes after it. Um, just, you know, I've been involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, and nearly every one of them dealt with religious expressions in public. And so we really don't want to criticize that system because we got people in church who are teachers in the system. We got a lot of kids who go there. Don't want them to feel bad. It's, wait a minute. If the Word of God says this is what it is, we need to have the Word of God out there. And so now so many people have compartmentalized their life. Here's church, and here's education. Here's church, and here's science. Here's church. We can't do that. I mean, church relates to everything, and so that's what you see in these old sermons. So education, here's a sermon on religion and patriotism, the constituents of a good soldier. This is an employment sermon from the First Great Awakening. This is 1755, preached by the Reverend Dr. Samuel Davies. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible in the military. You remember even when John the Baptist was baptizing, he had specific instructions for officers and for soldiers. So there's a lot that we have on military. Uh, here's a sermon on the relation of the medical profession to the ministry, 1854. Uh, really interesting sermon on health care. And by the way, it's really kind of fun. In 1961, a book came out called None of These Diseases. And it was a doctor. He said, you know, when God gave the health care code to the Hebrews 3,000 years ago, the Egyptians thought they were crazy. The Babylonians thought they were crazy. Everybody thought it was crazy. He said, but here we are in 1961, and we can now put a medical study to every single health care provision of the Bible. God was right thousands of years before man caught up. And that's 61. I mean, we got a whole lot more since then. It's just that we have such a secular thinking scientific community. They don't even know what the Bible says about health care. But we had sermons on health care we had sermons like this on the present commercial distress. If you can see the little bitty date up there, it's 1837. This is when we had an economic collapse akin to the Great Depression of 1929. So the economy collapses. Uh, this is a sermon on the property tax, permanent system of taxation. Most people don't know what the Bible says about taxes. I will point out the Bible does address the minimum wage, the capital gains tax, the progressive income tax, the estate tax. There's so many taxes it, it, it addresses specifically. It also addresses um, why tax are good and when they're good and when they're bad and who's supposed to pay them. So even things that we would, we would call the import taxes or, or the tariffs, I mean, that's even stuff that Jesus talked to Peter about. So a lot of times we just read through and we don't notice this stuff. They noticed it. They were looking for anything practical that came out. So a lot of economics covered out of the Bible. Um, this is a sermon preached in 1751. This is the middle of the Great Awakening. It's in front of the legislature of Virginia, and it's the sinfulness and pernicious nature of gaming. So gambling lotteries. 95% of Christians today cannot name a single verse that deals with gambling lotteries. Here's a good law, sermon on liquor law of Massachusetts. What happened? 1852, the legislature passed a law, and in church we said, no, wait a minute, legislature this week passed a law on this topic. Here's what they said. Let's see what the Bible says. Bible says this, okay, that's a good law. So it was called a good law because it lined up with what the Bible said about that. In the same way, here's a sermon on the impolicy and injustice of slave trade. This is 1791. This is the end of the first great awakening about how wrong slavery was and how we have to resist this as church people. And so there's just lots of sermons on lots of controversial issues in that day. Uh, this is marriage scripturally considered. This is 1837 in New Hampshire. New Hampshire had passed a law on marriage. And so on the pulpit, we said, here's the law passed last week. Here's what God says about marriage. Okay, that law's okay. They, they got it right. And so we looked and examined everything by biblical standards. Even this one, this is called, oops, it was called. Uh, the sermon here, I'm going to reconnect real quick, see if I can get it back in. It'll come back up. The sermon is called The Fugitive Slave Bill. It's called A Higher Law, is the title of the sermon. And pastors across the nation, there it comes. I'm going to escape and get back in. 
And so pastors across the nation preach this and says, people, listen up. You have to disobey this law. If you obey this law, you're disobeying God. You have to commit civil disobedience. This is not optional. And so they went through, and I, I consider that of all the millions of laws passed in America, I consider the future slave law to be maybe the single worst federal law ever passed in the history of the United States. You go into it and what it required, it is abominable. And so pastor said, you have to disobey this. So all across the country, you had juries that set aside the law, would not convict people under that law because the law was bad. They set the people free. So, I mean, we're weighing in on all sorts of stuff. So all sorts of social policies. I also had sermons on elections. So, you know, what Chad was talking about earlier, Christians getting involved, all the, all the stuff is there. And this is why John Adams said our pulpits have thundered. You look at what we talked about back then, there were so many topics that probably so, so many people have not heard covered today. And so when you look at what's back then, what you see is they address biblical relevancy. Now, today, what do we do today? Well, interesting, because every one of these topics that's appearing right there is something that's been in the news in the last two to 24 months or so. I chose them all because the Bible addresses every one of those issues. So. For most Christians, if you ask most Christians, what does the Bible say about the estate tax or due process or, or minimum wage? Most folks are gonna have a tough time answering that. And so what we find is that most Christians are not able to address those answers in the culture. Now, we do a lot of polling work as well. There's 384,000 senior pastors and churches in America. Right now, we find that only 2.8% of pastors are willing to address something that happened in the news because considered too many things political. Oh, that, that, that's, you know, and as Mark was saying in so many areas, it's not political stuff, it's biblical stuff, as Chad was repeating. So if, the, if it's in the Bible, it's biblical. I guarantee you the Bible was written before the United States of America was created. So if America is dealing with it, they're too late. God's already dealt with it. We're not doing political stuff. We're doing biblical stuff if it's in the Bible. So regardless of who says, oh, that's political, you can't get into that. If it's in the Bible, you can get into it. So that's where we are at this point now. What you've seen since the last 35 years particularly, but let me take the last 20 years, the number of Christians in America has dropped dramatically. In 2000, we were 85% of the nation professed Christianity. Uh, we are now down to 65% of the nation professed as Christianity. So 20% drop in, in 20 years. And in polling the people and say, why did, why did you stop going to church? Two out of three say, because we find the church lacks relevancy. It doesn't give us anything that addresses the needs we've got in public. And so what do we do with our kids? What do we do with the economy? What do we do with what we heard on the news? We don't get any guidance there. And so there's really nothing useful for us. Now, you know, and, and I understand salvation is really useful, but I'll also point out that I tell some pastors, I said, pastors, I can never go to your church because I don't need to get saved 52 times a year. And the church needs to cover some things like Ephesians 4, they equip people for the work of the ministry. You know, we, we need that equipping, that training of the saints. And so I totally support bringing people to Christ, altar calls, but there's so many that that's the only message you're going to hear. And that's just not what the Bible's about. That's part of it. Jesus said, go make disciples of all men, not make converts of all men. Teach them everything I've taught you, which would include John 8, what he teaches about due process, which would include Matthew 19, what Jesus teaches about no-fault divorce, which would include Matthew 20, where he covers the minimum wage, which include Luke 19, where he covers the, what we call the capital gains tax. He said, teach them everything I've taught you. That's the Great Commission. And so that's what we did in previous years. 
years. So all of that to say, we're at a point now where we really do need a revival. We've all heard this. We know people are praying for revival. Three years ago on the National Day of Prayer, there were 50,000 groups gathered at civic locations across the United States praying for revival. So this is something we've been praying for, but there's a real problem, I think, with God answering that prayer. I think there's a major problem we face because he's going to use us to answer that prayer. He's just not going to swoop down and, and change everybody's hearts immediately. He's going to use his people to do that. That's the way it always is. That's why we had Whitfields and Mayhews and, 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 and Asbury's and all those guys in revivals. So when you look at it, the major problem we face today is we have an obsession with the national focus. Let me explain this. What we have right now is when you watch the news, if you're on the right, I don't know, maybe you watch Fox or Victory News or Newsmax or whatever. If you're on the left, maybe you do MSNBC or, or CNN or whatever. Whatever you get, it's national news. You haven't heard a story on Waterton, New York. You haven't heard a story on Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, Jacksboro, Texas, Yukon, Oklahoma. We watch national stuff. And so as a result, we see things going on nationally. We see what's happening with, with Congress. We see what's happening with the Supreme Court. We see what's happening with the president. And look, I'm really connected to those levels. Um, just in the last week, I've talked to literally dozens of senators and reps because we're in the middle of operations in Afghanistan trying to get people out. Talking to the Secretary of State and trying to get Blinken to help us get people out. And we've got at least a dozen people in the State Department that don't want anybody out. And so they're standing up to both Blinken and to the senators. And it's just, it's it's crazy, um, and, and I can't go into the number we've rescued, but somewhere around 15,000, but we've still got about 4,000 on the ground we're trying to get out even today. Uh, as I walked in here, we were still making calls on what to do with planes and how to get them moving, how can we get them past the Taliban, and Pakistan very thankfully has intervened on our behalf with, with the Taliban, and so the Taliban's listening to Pakistan. So look, I've got connections in all these places, including the Supreme Court, and you know what? I can't get any of them to do what I think ought to be done. The court's the one who's caused most of the culture war. And Congress, are you kidding me? H.R. 5, you're going to take all religious liberties away and make it subject to the opinion of Congress rather than the Constitution? And what the president has done with Afghanistan? I mean, it's just, it's just it blows my mind. So what happens is I've got connections. A lot of people don't have the connections I've got, but we're all frustrated. We're all paralyzed. There's nothing any of us can do to make the president do something different on Afghanistan. None of us can do anything to make the Supreme Court get a different decision. None of us can make Pelosi do anything differently. None of us can make the Senate. We're just stuck. And so what happens is we're, we're, we're paralyzed because we focus on national stuff rather than local stuff. The focus should be on what's happening locally. Let me give you examples of how this worked historically. Go back to the American War for Independence. The first four battles in the American War for Independence, top right around the clock, top right is Lexington, uh, top left is the Battle of Northbridge of Concord, bottom left is the Battle of the Road to Boston, and bottom right is the Battle of Bunker Hill. Take those battles, it's interesting, First four battles in the American War for Independence, nobody contacted George Washington and said, George, enemy's here. You need to bring troops, come help us. Nobody contacted George. They all said, you're busy elsewhere. It's all right. It's our community. We'll take care of it. Every single one of those battles was handled at the local level. George didn't show up for any of them. Now, as it turns out, that's the way most of the American War for Independence was. We needed George a few times. He showed up and did Brandywine and Monmouth and Yorktown, and that was good, although there was a lot of local stuff that showed up with him. But sometimes you need national help, but most of the time, the American War for Independence was without national help. So let me just kind of take you through the, the first ones here. Take that first one top right. That is the Battle of Lexington, April the 19th, 1775. 700 British came to town, 
and 70 townsmen from Lexington went out to meet them. No, that's really not true. 70 men from Jonas Clark's church went out to meet them. Jonas Clark assembled the church and said, guys, can't let the British do that here. We've got to stand and not let them do that. He said, I've been teaching you for years about how to stand for what's right. And he said, and by the way, remember, you cannot start a war. You cannot fire a shot. Now, if they fire at you, you have the right of self-defense biblically, but you can't start anything. So you go out there and stand. And so deacon of the church, John Parker, told the men, he said, remember what Pastor Clark's been telling us? He says, you can't fire the first shot. He says, now, you can fire if fired upon, and if they mean to have a war, let it begin here, but we're not going to let them cross here. So the British 700 soldiers got the first shot, which is why 18 Americans hit the ground that day. Um, it was that, that morning they, they hit the ground and included black patriots like Prince Estabrook and white patriots like John Robbins. By the way, they all went to church together. Well, we didn't know that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, while I'm on that, just for a moment, the American Revolution Every battle in the American Revolution was integrated. Black and whites fought side by side. There were not separate units. And the entire American Revolution was all based on volunteer soldiers. You enlisted for six months. That's your term of enlistment. The average white guy served one term of enlistment. The average black guy re-enlisted nine times. So on average, black soldiers fought nine times more than white soldiers did in the revolution. Uh, the first SEAL team, if you will, first special forces team was a volunteer force composed of 40 soldiers, first formed in Rhode Island, had 20 black soldiers, 20 white soldiers. The missions they pulled off are Hollywood stories. They are really, really cool stuff. They did. And, and I take you through, uh, and back then, by the way, if you had a picture painted of you back then, then that, you're a pretty important person. I mean, there's just not cameras or anything else, and it costs money to have a picture. You would not believe how many black war heroes have pictures painted of them because they were the chief victor or the chief hero in the war. We haven't covered that in history since 1902, and I can show you when it changed and why it changed. We used to know black history. We don't know black history today, which is why we can say how bad it's always been and how everybody's been racist. It's just like Harry Hoosier. If we knew Harry Hoosier, the narrative on CRT would be a little harder to hold. And the more Harry Hoosiers you know, the, the less you would buy into that. But we just don't know our history. So going that, so after the, the British whipped the Americans there at Lexington, they marched on the Concord, which had been their, their objective. They were going to Northbridge at Concord. And at that point, 300 Americans met the 700 Brit No, I got it wrong again. It was not 300 Americans. It was the church of the Reverend William Emerson. He brought 300 guys of his church out there and said, this is our town. You're not going to do this to our town. So he defended the town. The British said, this is not a good deal because that's when the British first got shot was at that battle. And they said, we had 70 guys. Now we've got 300. There's only 700 of us. If this keeps going, we're in real trouble. Let's get back to Boston quick. So they turned around and did a forced march back to Boston. That's the road to Boston battles, 19-mile running battle. Uh, they were actually going back to Charleston, but that's close to Boston. And along the way, there were 4,500 Americans along the road shooting at the British. Where'd they come from? Reverend Payson Phillip grabbed his church and said, let's go defend the towns. You had Reverend Benjamin Balch grabbed his church and said, let's go defend. It was the church that stood up and it was the church defending their local community saying, you're not going to do this in our community. And then even when you go to the Battle of Bunker Hill, battle, and by the way, the guy on the furthest right, his name is Peter Salem. He was the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill. That day, 13 white officers wrote commendations for him, said, this guy's got to be promoted. He saved all of our lives today. And so there are big paintings of Peter Salem. He appeared in textbook for generations. 
reparations as the hero of the battle of Bunker Hill, another black patriot, really cool guy. But on that battle, Reverend, when Bunker Hill, Reverend Joseph Willips said, come on, I got two companies in church, let's go over there, we got to take on the British. It was all about local stuff. And so when you look at what happened locally, we won the national war because we won local victories. All those local victories we won created a national victory, but it wasn't that we had George winning all the stuff. We had local battles, and that's what won the national victory. And so that local focus, it's revivals are the same thing. We look at revivals, and somehow we think that revivals are, are national. We had a national revival because, after all, in the Great Awakening, you did have folks like George Whitfield. I mean, and Whitfield, I mean, he's amazing. Whitfield preached for 34 years in America. He made seven journeys from Maine down to Georgia and back on horseback. And it took him you know, those 34 years to do it. So long, slow journeys, because he preached 18,000 times along the way. He preached another 16,000 times in, in England, having revivals there. So 34,000 sermons in 34 years, 1,000 sermons a year. You can figure that out. That's three a day. So, I mean, this guy is amazing. And interestingly enough, 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon. Now, let me point out, no high-tech media back then. The reason 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon is that that's how many communities he was in. It isn't a national revival. He went to this town of 500. They had a revival. This town of 1,500 went to Philadelphia, 12,000. That town is 2,300. He was in that many towns. That many local revivals started off because they weren't connected well back then. They didn't have what we have today connected. It was so many local revivals it was recognized as a national revival. So the focus, again, was on community after community. And that's why when you look at Samuel Cooper, called by John Adams, he was the guy who kept the revival going in Boston. Uh, you look at Gilbert Tennant, he's the guy who kept the revival going in Philadelphia. Philadelphia and out in the western valleys of, uh, from Philadelphia. Uh, Samuel Davies is the guy in the rural parts of Virginia that kept this thing going. That's why Patrick, he mentored Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry came to Christ back in those revivals and he mentored him. And so you look at the guys who were doing the local stuff and they're really significant guys, but that's our focus is on national. So we got to get away from that national focus and get back to that local focus. That obsession with national focus needs to be replaced and it needs to be replaced the same with all of us, wherever we are, wherever God's put us. Um, so I want to hit voting real quick on the same perspective. We're all tired of hearing about voting. We hear it every election. I want to give you some different stats maybe that you haven't seen before. To vote in America under the Constitution, you have to be 18 years old and a legal citizen, and that's it. So 100% of the people who are 18 years old and a legal citizen have the right to vote. All we ask you to do is please register because we want to make sure that somebody didn't vote for you seven times or whatever. Right now, 67.1% of Americans are registered to vote. So we have taken about one-third of all Americans, and they said, I don't care what happens to the country. I'm not going to participate in anything that goes on. So that's a lot, 67%. We're down, 20, we're down that, that 33%. Now, let me take you into presidential elections like we had last year. Since the time of Ronald Reagan for the last 41 years, the average national turnout in a presidential election is 54%. But it's not 54% of the 100%, it's 54% of registered voters. So that's 54% of 67%, which means 36% of Americans vote in a presidential election. It takes half of that to win, so you're looking at 18% is what it takes to win the presidency. Now, when you go into the election like we have next November coming up, uh, and by the way, you guys have school board elections coming up here this November, but next November, when we vote for 
governor and senator and whatever else, the average national turnout for the last 40 years is about 39%. Now, that's 39% of 67%, which means we're right at about 26% of adults that vote in elections for governors and whatnot. It takes half of that to win, so you're looking at 13%. So, in perspective, when we choose a president of the United States, it's usually one out of five Americans who chooses the president. And when we choose a governor or senator, what else, it's, it's about one out of eight Americans. That's why voting does matter. And that's why there are so many that don't engage. If the church were to engage, we could change the tone of, of virtually everything that goes on in po public policy. Now, here's where I really want to focus is local elections. When you look at a local election, you average about 6% turnout in local elections. But that's 6% is 67%, which means about 4%. And it takes half of that to win. So you're looking at about 2% is what it takes to win a local election. Let me give you some examples. Let me take you to California, city of Los Angeles. Los Angeles, one of the largest cities in the nation. The population of the city of Los Angeles is larger than 23 separate individual states. So if you're the mayor of Los Angeles, you're the governor in 23 states. The mayor of Los Angeles is Eric Garcetti. He's very hostile toward churches, shut them down early, just clamped down on them, and all the lawsuits have been gone. Very hostile area. Eric Garcetti brags about being elected the mayor of Los Angeles. He had 2.9% of the vote. That's a tiny amount. That's a huge city. We think there must be millions who voted, not by a long shot. Let me take you to my state of Houston. In Houston, same thing happened. Um, oops, there we go. In Houston, Houston is the size of 20 states. 20 states are less population than Houston. Houston elected Anise Parker as their mayor. Anise Parker uh, was elected with 4.9% of the vote. Now, that's 4.9% of 67%, so about 3.3% is how she was elected mayor. Anise Parker was an open lesbian mayor, the first open lesbian mayor we've had in Houston. And she said... That, that we need to stop all this discrimination against LGBTQ. So passed a measure that's called HERO. It was called Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. That's HERO, Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. And she said, under this Equal Rights Ordinance, if you say that marriage is between a man and a woman, that is a hate crime, and you will be punished if you say marriage between a man and a woman. Well, people did, and so there were six pastors she targeted, went and says, you violated the law. And by the way, they also, they passed this in 200 cities. Larger cities have this. Uh, San Antonio passed one of these equal rights ordinances. In San Antonio, if you say that marriage between a man and a woman is a Class C misdemeanor, it's a $500 a day fine. If you say that, you can never hold office in San Antonio. You can't even do business with the city. I can't do a parking lot paving. I can't do landscaping. So this is, 200 cities now have, the, have this policy. So she came out, and there were six pastors she targeted and said, I demand that you turn over your sermons, your notes. I'm subpoenaing everything you have. You have 16 different forms of communication. I want to see all your emails. I want to see all your texts. I want to see all your social media. And so she went after pastors to hang them up and say, here's what's going to happen if you say marriage between a man and a woman. Well, Citizens Houston said, wait a minute, that's, that's not what we thought was going to happen. And so we were able to get a special referendum vote on the ballot to vote on that HERO measure. Uh, in doing that, we got the signatures gathered, got them approved. We had 4,500 churches we got involved in Houston. 4,500 churches got involved, and the day before the election, the Houston, I think it was a Chronicle or the Post, one of them ran a poll that said that our side was going to get crushed as a 60-40 margin. We're going to get crushed. When the actual election happened, it wasn't the three... 
0.3% or 4.9% turnout. It was actually a 14% turnout we had. And as a result, we crushed the other side. We won 61 to 39. There was a 22-point difference that nobody ever saw coming. And, you know, Houston's a big city, and, and that, that's a big deal. Let me take you to one other city that's considered a large city, and that's Fort Worth, Texas. Fort Worth, Texas, five years ago, is from the Fort Worth Independent School District. They came up with this notion that said, you know what? Let's not have genders anymore. We're going to let anybody use any bathroom they want to, and we're going to let anybody use any locker room, any shower room they want to. We're just not going to have genders anymore. You can just choose what you want to use. Well, I tell you, that was a tough one coming out of Texas because we're considered to be conservative and red, and this is like, we're the first city to do this. Well, Arnie Duncan, who was the Secretary of Education under President Obama, picked it up and said, that's a great idea. We'll do this nationally. So he came out with a measure that says, if your school receives federal funds, if you get federal education funds, you can't have genders. You have to have no gender bathrooms, locker rooms, shower rooms, et cetera. And so uh, just, this ticked me off, okay? I mean, we are Cowtown USA. Are you kidding me? Anybody who works with cows and cattle knows how many genders there are. Anybody who lives in the country knows how many genders there are. And anybody who lives in the country knows that they're separate genders and you don't get to pick and choose and cross over. I mean, it was just, it wasn't even common sense. And so I looked at Fort Worth and there were 800,000 voters in Fort Worth. The president of the school board who came up with this policy and pushed it was selected with less than 1,200 votes. It was actually 1,182 votes. It was tiny. So I started looking at his district, and in his district, I found immediately one evangelical church that had more than 3,000 Bible-believing adults in that church. That one church could have helped, kept him from being on the school board, which would have stopped that policy from going national, and that's just a local election. I mean, that's the impact that that election could have had. So take you through a few more real quick. Bentonville, Arkansas is the home of Walmart. Um, this, there's 40,000 in that town. And there was a Christian lady in that town said, you ain't doing this in my town. I'm running for school board. And so she ran for school board and she got elected. In a town of 40,000, there was a total of 35 votes cast in that school board election. And she won with 35 votes cast. But that's not as good as Riceville, Iowa. Riceville, Iowa, pig former up north said, you ain't doing this in our school. And so he put his name, I'm running for school board, I'm on the ballot. And it turned out that on election day, he was busy on the farm and didn't go vote for himself. And don't think he lost by one vote because that's not what happened. What happened is nobody at all voted in his election. If he had voted for himself, he would be on the school board. It's that low in so many areas. Um, one more to give you real quick, South Lake. This is a middle city, about 100,000. South Lake, Texas, this last e election cycle, um, their school district is, is, is a good racial balance, and both black students and white students had Equal academic scores, which is very unusual in school. And so equal academic scores, communities very balanced, very peaceful, very great. And then the school board says, we need to be teaching CRT. You guys didn't know it, but you're oppressors. And you didn't know it, but you've actually been oppressed. And so where this balance had been, all of a sudden you've injected this, this conflict into it. And so parents said, that's not good. And so what happened was 51 churches got together and said, We're, this is not good for our kids. And those 51 churches said... We've looked, there is a mayor up for election, there are two city councils up for election, two school board members up for election. We think we can do better than what we've got. And so those 51 churches got together and recruited candidates from among them. They vetted them, they said they're really good and they agreed on them. And 
the Sunday before the Tuesday election, on Sunday, 51 churches put up a slide on the screen that says, hey, we want you to know about these five candidates. Now, we're not telling you who to vote for, but we're telling you we vetted these candidates, and they're really good. They're from among us. And so on election day, two days later on Tuesday, the voter turnout was three times higher than it had ever been in the history of the city. All five candidates won by a landslide 70-30 margin. It wasn't even close. So that city has now righted itself the conflict is gone. The equality is back like it's supposed to be. And so this all comes from having a local focus. These are where you can win the battles. None of these probably made the news. Nobody's seen any of these battles in the news. That's the, that's the, the nature of news. That's why we have this national obsession, national focus. So I encourage you to look in your community. And why would we be concerned about what happens in civil government? Benjamin Rush is a good example. Benjamin Rush, I mentioned, one of the three most notable founding fathers, evangelical Christian. He started the first Bible Society in America, started the first Sunday School Movement in America, started the first Abolitionist Society in America. But he's also called the father of public schools under the Constitution. Started five universities, three still go go today. In 1790, he wrote this piece on why, on what public schools should be teaching in America. Great educator. He said, the purpose of public schools in America is threefold. He says, number one, public schools should teach students how to love and serve God. Number two, public schools should teach students how to love and serve their country. Number three, they should teach public schools how to love and serve their family. So notice, he says, teach, love, and serve God, teach to love and serve country, teach to love and serve family. Wait a minute, time out. I think today we would say it should be a different priority. It should be God, and it should be family, and then it should be country. But he said no. He said you put country above family. He said God, country, family. Because he pointed out if you ever lose control of your country, it will become the great enemy to your family. And that's what's happened. We've seen politically uh, one of the great attacks on all faith in America is coming out of education. It's coming out of schools. And, and we've been over here taking care of our family. They've been taking care of policies and government. And so what we're being taught now, and this is why school boards are such a big focus. I mean, they are here in Colorado. Um, we're engaged in a project right now that will provide uh, voters' guides on about 120 races here, many of them here in El Paso County. And by the way, if you're interested in voters' guides and they're Christian questions, we asked five things. Do you think you should be teaching CRT? Do you think there should be parental rights, that parents have a right to see everything that their kids are being taught? Uh, do, do you uh, think that there should be age-appropriate sex education, unlike Chicago, where they're giving 10-year-old girls birth control pills at the age of 10, unlike Texas, where they came to Texas and said the age of consent for sexual activity needs to be 10 years old, elementary school. I mean, so that's not age appropriate in any way, shape. So ask five questions about values. And that tells you the value system of those running. If you guys are interested in having any of those voter guides for your churches, you can sign up in the bag. Just let us have your church number. We'll get those voters guides to you. There's not voters guides being done basically usually in Colorado. Some churches do, but most don't. But school boards, that's a focus. This is something we can get back. We can turn things around. We can change the future. Future. But to get school boards, you need good candidates. And how do you get good candidates? Well, Judges 9 tells us a parable about how to get good candidates. Judges 9, verses 8 through 15, is called the parable of the trees of the field. It said, one day the trees went forth to anoint a king over them. Let's have civil government here in the forest. Let's not be uncivilized. Let's have government. And it says, they went first to the olive tree, and they said, the olive tree rained out over us. But the olive tree said unto them, mm, no, I, I don't want to get involved in civil government. Should I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honor both God and man and go be promoted over the trees? It's okay. Well, if the olive tree won't do it, let's go to the fig tree. And so they went to the fig tree and said, come down, rain over us. But the fig tree said unto them, not me. Should I, give my, should I leave my sweetness, my good fruit, and go be promoted over the trees? 
Well, if we can't get the olive tree or the fig tree, let's go to the vine. And so they went to the vine and said, come down and reign over us. And the vine said to them, mm -mm, not going to be me. Should I leave my wine with cheereth both God and man and go be promoted over the trees? Now, what you see here is all the good trees don't want to be involved in that kind of stuff. So all the good trees had a lot of reasons why they couldn't do it. And that's the way good people are generally with getting involved in this kind of stuff. I know I can't do that. But notice what happens as a result. Because they couldn't get the good trees, it says, then said the trees of the field unto the bramble. Hmm, that's not a good turn of events. They said unto the bramble, says, come thou and reign over us. And wouldn't you know it, the bramble was happy to do that. The bramble said, if you know me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. How much enjoyment are you going to have in the shadow of a bramble bush? Not much. And I would argue that today we have way too many bramble bushes that are ruling. There, there's not enough good guys ruling because we all keep saying, no, we've got other stuff to do. Benjamin Rush taught students in his textbooks, you're not allowed to say no if someone asks you to run for office. And here's the reason why. God did not put you here to serve yourself. He put you here to serve others. And if they come to you and say, we really need you to serve us in, in civil government, that's, that's such an important ministry. You can't say no if people are asking for help. It's like the Good Samaritan. You can't turn your back and say no. So how do we avoid brambles as rulers? Well, again, the Bible gives us good counsel on that. If you look particularly in Exodus 18, 21, it says, Provide out of all the people, able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covenants, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Provide out of the people, your local, county, state, and federal folks, and choose able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covenants. That's qualifications for office, and that's the kind of people you want in office from local through federal level. But it says provide out. Now, how in the world do you provide out? Who, who provides? Let's go back to the story. You remember it was Jethro that came to Moses and said, you shouldn't be ruling all this. You need leaders at different levels. There's too many people, three million people. You're the single ruler. You can't do that. You got to have government that operates at levels. And, and Moses says, that's a word from God. I'll do that. And so in not only in Deuteronomy, or not only in Exodus 18, but in Deuteronomy 1 and Deuteronomy 15, Moses talks about what he did after Jethro gave him that counsel he believed was from God. He says, I went out among you and I found people among you that met those qualifications and I presented them to you and then you chose from among those who you wanted your rulers to be. So actually what Moses did was Moses went and recruited people for office, put them in front of the people and said, you guys choose who you want. And then there was an election for them. And that's kind of what we're talking about here is somebody needs to recruit the good trees to get on the ballot. Doesn't mean they're going to get elected, but at least you got the choice. And so that's what you find from Moses. And you find that throughout the scriptures as well. I mean, when you consider uh, Saul being the first civil leader, who chose Saul? Samuel. Because God said, this is the dude that needs to be in there. He, he's the, the guy I'm going to use. Same thing happened with David. It was once again, Samuel uh, said, hey, I thought it should have been Jonadab, but God told me, you're the guy. And Jonadab was, looked like a warrior to me. you got freckles on your face. You don't look like you're going to be anything. Nonetheless, he went because that's what God told him to do, was go, go get David. And then when Solomon was chosen, it was Nathan and Gad who anointed him. So in civil government, the objective of what you want is you want to elect people that you don't have to lobby. Now, I will tell you, I have recruited people for office for years. Uh, I've helped run political parties at state level. I've been involved in political parties at national level. Been involved with lots of political parties. And I have recruited a lot of people to run for local office and state office and federal office. And a lot of those guys have been elected to office. And I have never one time called a single one of them 
on how to vote. I, did, I didn't have to call any of those guys and say, hey, make sure you vote on this pro-life bill. Make sure you vote that marriage is men. I recruited them because of what they believe. I don't have to lobby them to do what's right because I recruited guys who already had a biblical worldview. And so I, I don't have to lobby them, which is, is really nice. So if you, don't, if you want to elect leaders, you don't have to lobby. That means you have to recruit leaders. You don't have to lobby. Because if you let just whoever walks up, you're going to get a lot of thorn bushes in there, a lot of brambles. And that's what we've had. Is we're waiting to see who shows up. And a lot of times it's not the good folks. It takes active, diligent recruitment. So closing this out, final quote I've got for you comes from Charles Finney. Charles Finney was part of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, Charles Finney in one year led 100,000 people to Christ. But Charles Finney wrote a book in 1835, his lectures on revival or how to experience revival. Charles Finney taught that revival is something that you can generate in the sense that there are things you can do that will cause God to respond. We all know 2 Chronicles 7, 14, but notice it's an if then. If my people will do this, then I will hear from heaven and heal the land. And so if, if you'll do this stuff, God will respond. And that's, he went through all these scriptures that says, if then, if you do this, God's gonna respond. So if you want a revival, here's what you need to be doing. And so in doing that, he has a number of lectures. They're all a lot of fun to read. It's a fun book to read. Again, 1835, it's online, it's for free. You can read it. Um, it's interesting, this is one of his lectures. He said, the church must take right ground in regard to politics. He said, politics are part of a religion and a country such as this. And Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. He said, God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. Now, that's interesting because God's not going to bless a nation that's doing some of the stuff we're doing right now. So if you want God to bless a nation, you've got to have to get some different policies, which means you've got to get different people, which to get different people, you've got to get involved in politics. Now, here's what is most interesting to me about this statement. This is logical. It, it has biblical basis. But this was revival lecture number 15, which he called hindrances to revival. He said, if you want to hinder a revival from coming, then just stay out of politics. If you want a revival to come, you're going to have to get involved because public policy is what God looks at. Righteousness exalts the nation. That's public policy. So if you don't get involved in public policy, it's going to hinder revival. That's the way we have to rethink things. In the 20th century, we went through a lot of compartmentalization. Here's the church, but here's education. Here's the church, but here's science. Here's the church, but here's media. Here's the church, but here's entertainment. Did you know that prior to 1968, no movie could come out of Hollywood if it wasn't approved by a, a council of clergymen who looked at every movie and said, that's okay, that's, that's a good one. And in 68, the church says, what are we doing in secular stuff like movies? Let's get out of that. How's that worked out for us? You know, so we've got to be involved in stuff, and we have been historically, but the, we've, we've gone through transition. So challenge to you is re-examine around, look for good people in your church, get actively involved. Again, school board elections coming up. We'll have all sorts of aids for you. You can put your name and church on that list. We'll deliver the guides to you. Um, and and it is, as Mark said earlier, if this stuff is new to you, I would recommend The American Story, which covers so much of this history that, that we just don't cover anymore. And the Founder's Bible is good places to go. Chad, back to you, sir. Yes, sir. Y'all give David Barnes a hand. Hi, Pastor Kagan again here. I hope that you enjoyed that special presentation from the American Restoration Tour and David Barton. But now it's time to get involved, so head on over to faithwins.us, faithwins.us, and find out how you can be engaged in your local community being salt and light for the Lord Jesus Christ.